Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Well, I said this morning we are going to finally reach the halfway point, walking through Paul's letter to the Romans. So I thought, what a great opportunity for us just to, right here at the beginning, press pause and kind of recap where we've been and just kind of reset the, the where we are. Because this is kind of like a Netflix series, right? You jump in in the middle, you have no idea what's going on. So what a great time to do previously on Paul's letter to the Romans. So if you remember Paul's writing this letter to a network of five Roman house churches. They're each about 20 to 30 people in size. And we have to be clear, he is not writing this letter to correct some kind of skewed theology. He is not writing this letter to make sure everybody agrees on some core doctrines. No, he's writing this letter because there's a significant controversy and division that's happening in these churches. In fact, Paul will address two major groups. The first one is the group he calls the weak. These are Jewish Christians who are weak because they do not have any positions of power or privilege or authority within the church. Now, as Jewish Christians, they grew up as Jewish people. They didn't just know the Torah. They, like, memorized it. They put it into practice. They made sure they were eating kosher, and they were wearing certain kinds of clothing, but not others. They would keep the Sabbath holy. All of those things were key parts of their identity because it set them apart from everybody else. And in their minds, they're thinking, well, Jesus was Jewish, if we're going to follow him, then we want to do the same things he did. So as Christians, we ought to make sure we're implementing those same practices. Now, the problem is there's another group that Paul calls the strong. These are non-Jewish or Gentile believers who are sitting in the positions of power and authority in the church, and they did not grow up understanding the Torah and implementing these practices. And so they thought, we've been invited to follow Jesus anyway. We don't need to do these things. And this wasn't just like a debate that people had. I mean, things got heated and it escalated quickly because the, the, the weak then look at the strong and they say, you guys don't know scripture. You don't really uh, follow Jesus's teachings. We're not even sure if you're actually following him at all. You're kind of out there, liberal, progressive, all this other stuff. And so they start to look down and condemn and judge the strong. So then the strong turn around. They say, you know what? We don't need this. So they use all of their power and authority and privilege to try to push the Jewish Christians out of the church. And so this burgeoning church in Rome is on the verge of breaking and falling apart, which has caused all of these questions. If Jesus can't even work to keep these five house churches together, then what hope does he ever have of saving the whole world? And so Paul writes this letter to keep this church unified, to draw them together in Jesus. And so his letter has four main movements. We brought this up a few weeks ago. I thought it'd be great to bring it up again today. In Romans chapter one through four, Paul opens his letters by trying to bring the two groups together. In other words, he says, no group is superior to another group in this church. And he really goes after the weak. He says, just because you have this history or this heritage or these practices, that does not make you inherently better than the strong. So we're not looking down on anybody. We're all unified together. And that's important because in Romans 5 through 8, Paul says, let me give you the bigger picture of what's going on in the world and why it's important that you remain unified the next week, we'll get into the third movement of Paul's argument, which is Romans 9 through 11, where he addresses the questions that the weak have. Well, wait a second. If Jesus came and he's changing the game, 
then is God faithful or has he abandoned his promises? And spoiler alert, God is faithful. We'll see that next week. And then the final movement is Romans 12 through 15, where Paul really teases out how do we live together? What does this look like practically? And Romans 16 is an epilogue. It's all the greetings. If we have time, we will get to it. If not, you can research that one on your own. But today we are coming to the close of that second uh, kind of section where Paul's giving the big picture. And this is so important for us to understand because um, many of us, if I would say not all of us, when we approach the scripture, we come from a very Western kind of mindset. And so when we think about what God is doing in the world, oftentimes it goes something like this. We were told, we were taught that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, so we've incurred God's wrath. So God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to take our place, and if we believe in him, then we get to go to heaven and be with God when we die. Now, there are parts of that story that are true, and you can certainly pick and choose verses and pull them out of context and put them together to say that's the story the Bible's telling. But number one, that really forces a Western mindset on a scripture that was written from an Eastern mindset. But number two, that story of the Bible, who is that one all about? It's all about me. Jesus died for my sins so that I could have a relationship with God. I could go to heaven when I die. It's all about me. It puts us as the focus of scripture. But for Paul, growing up as a Jewish person in the first century, he would have looked at the story of the Bible by going all the way back to Genesis. And in Genesis, it says that God created the world, and it was what? All right, that was pretty weak. Okay, I think we can do better, all right? So after the first day, God saw it, and it was? And after the second day, God saw that it was? And after he created Mexican food, he saw that it was very? Yes, amen. We got a grade in there. I mean, woo, we're bringing it this morning. Yes, yes, it was all good. And it was teeming with life and there was an abundance and, and everything that anybody ever needed was there. But we forget sometimes that there was still work to be done. There were still areas of creation that were in chaos and disarray. And God wanted to bring those into order and make everywhere on earth look like heaven on earth. And so to do this, he created Adam and Eve, and he created them as his images. There we go. You guys remember. This is awesome. Now, when he created them as his images, it doesn't mean that they looked like him. It meant that they acted like him. They would act in the world on his behalf. The way Genesis says is they were to work in the world and watch over it. You can almost think of them as like God's kind of um, keepers, like, like caretakers over the world to continue his work of bringing order to the chaos, healing to brokenness, and spreading the boundaries of heaven on earth. There's a problem because what do Adam and Eve do? Instead of imaging God, they imaged the serpent, or we could even argue they imaged themselves. They wanted to decide what was good and evil. And when they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not that they just broke some kind of arbitrary command. But what Paul says in Roman is that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And so when Paul talks about sin, he talks about it in two ways. One, there's a verb, right? Adam sinned. We, we all can commit sin. But he also uses it as a noun, that there is this power of sin and death that are at work in the world and are actually influencing our behavior. And when we sin, we give the power of sin more power and influence in the world. 
Maybe a way to illustrate this is back in the early 2000s, um, they opened up the Millennium Bridge in London. Has anybody ever seen the Millennium Bridge? If you're not sure if you've seen Harry Potter, you have seen the Millennium Bridge. It's in that movie. And when they opened it, everything was structurally sound, as long as they didn't have like tens of thousands of people walking on it all at the same time. But when they first opened it up, tens of thousands of people decided to walk on it at the same time. And so as that many people started walking on the bridge, the bridge began to sway. And as the bridge began to sway, you can actually see video of this on YouTube. It's phenomenal. All of a sudden, everybody starts walking in step with the sway of the bridge. So what do you think happens? The bridge sways more and more. And so you watch this video where everybody thinks they're walking perfectly straight, but everybody sitting on the banks of the river sees this bridge like waving wildly. That's exactly what happens. When we sin, we all of a sudden give sin power. But as sin power grows, it starts to influence us. So we think that's just the way the world is, right? People hurt you, so you hurt them back. You look out for yourself. You, you take what, what is rightfully yours. We think that this is the way the world is because the power of sin is influencing us. Does this make sense? And so what Paul talks about, he kind of paints this picture that there's this realm, this, this, this realm we live in called in the world or in the flesh. And in this uh, realm, sin and death are the main powers at work. And wherever those powers are at work, there's disunity, chaos, disorder, division, and ultimately death, right? The wages of sin is death. When we live in the world, in the flesh, under sin's power and influence, it ultimately results in death. Now, this is a problem because for God, the story of the Bible is not, guys, you messed up this place. I'm going to burn the whole thing to the ground and just save whoever I can. No, no. God actually wants to rescue, restore, and redeem his creation, so in the Old Testament, he calls out a people for himself, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and he gives them the Torah and all those laws and practices so that they would be set apart to be different from the rest of the world. So when everyone else is zigging, they're zagging. They're set apart. They live differently to show the world what heaven on earth would look like, to show the world what it looks like when God is in charge. They were called to be the light to the world. But the problem is that even though the, the Torah and the law was good, sin's power influenced even that. And so this Torah that was supposed to set aside Israel to be a light of the world, they started thinking they were set apart because they were better than the world, that God loved them and hated everybody else, that they needed to be kept separated because they don't want to be contaminated by these other nations. And sin's power so twisted the Torah that all of a sudden Israel failed to be the people God called them to be. There's an important point to make. The law, Torah, is not bad. All right, don't, don't rip the Old Testament out of your Bible, okay? It is not bad. But sin's power twisted it so it was used for a purpose other than what it was intended. By the way, that's the genius of sin. It will always take something that is good and twist it to be used for a purpose other than how God intended and so what Paul says in Romans is he sent his son Jesus to do what the law could not do and actually set apart a people. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, he defeated the powers of sin and death. He cleaned the polluted space in this world, and he instituted this new realm that Paul calls in Christ or in the spirit. 
And here it's not sin and death that are the main powers at work, but grace and righteousness that they begin to influence our lives to make us more like Jesus. And when we live in Christ, all of a sudden our lives become marked by unity, peace, wholeness, love, like self-sacrificial love, considering others better than ourselves, being humble. And ultimately this leads to life. I'm not just talking about life after you die, but the abundant life that Jesus talked about, which is to actually be the images that God created us to be. And so Paul says, we're born in the world. We're born into the flesh. But when we trust in Jesus and follow him, we are baptized into Christ. And now we have a new way that we should be living. Are we tracking so far? If anybody has questions, just raise your hand, shout it out. We'll, we'll get, I want everybody to be on the same page. I'm not asking you to buy into it. I just want to make sure I'm being clear in what I'm saying. Because here's the problem that results. These churches are supposed to be living in Christ, but instead they're operating like they're still in the flesh. They're supposed to be unified, but they're still condemning and judging other people. And so they look around and they say, wait a second, we're supposed to be living in Christ. We're supposed to be experiencing heaven on earth. But when we look around at our church, sometimes it doesn't feel like heaven. It feels like hell. Like sometimes it doesn't feel like we're in Christ. It feels like we're just like the world. I don't know if anybody here can ever relate to that. Like in one sense, we know that Jesus has defeated the powers of sin and death. He's already done that. And yet sometimes when we experience life, it feels like it's not here quite yet. Anybody know what I mean? Like we live in Christ and we want to experience the fullness of his love. And yet we still have lives and we live in a world that is impacted by the power of sin and death. So what scholars say is we're living in between the already and the not yet. Because Jesus has already brought heaven to earth, but it's not yet here in full. And so the question is, how are we supposed to live in between the already and the not yet? That's the question Paul is wrestling with as we jump into Romans chapter 8, verse 12. It says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. You could say sons and daughters. So what he's saying here is you don't live in the flesh anymore. If you've been born to Jesus, you've died to the flesh. So you have to put away the evil deeds associated with that. Because when you are baptized in Christ, you're now God's children. It's a whole new way of living. So we got to get rid of the deeds of the flesh. And we would ask ourselves, what are the deeds of the flesh. And honestly, in the culture we live in, a lot of times uh, it's really easy for us to jump to like, well, you know, there's like sexual impurity. And, and by the way, that, that, that is a real thing that God addresses in scripture. But a lot of times in American Christian culture, that becomes like the number one thing. Like as long as you're sexually pure, we don't care if you hate your neighbors, right? As long as you um, don't have sex before you're married, then it doesn't matter if you're materialistic and greedy, it's what one um, uh, teacher and scholar, Sky Jatani, calls crotch Christianity. And we just put a very much of an emphasis on, are people sexually pure? Now, a lot of that is shaped by Victorian ethic, and that's a whole different talk for a different time. That's neither they're bad or good. I'm just saying that's kind of the culture we live in. But when Paul is talking about evil deeds, he's got a different kind of hierarchy he's thinking through. 
And you're thinking, Matt, what do you mean hierarchy? Listen, all of us have a hierarchy of sin. Now, it's true, all sin is the same, and that when we commit sins, we're contributing to the power that sin has in the world. But you inherently know that there's a difference between telling your wife her butt does not look big in those jeans when in fact it does, and then sleeping with somebody you're not married to. Right? Like we could objectively say those are two different things. One's a little white lie. One is a big breach of trust. It's one thing to lose your temper and to yell at somebody in anger. And it's another thing to break into your neighbor's house and murder them. Right? Like there's, there are kind of sins that are greater. All of them are bad. But there are some that we would look at and say, yep, that's definitely a bad one. Now for Paul and his hierarchy, what evil deeds is he referring to? Remember, he's writing to a church that is experiencing a significant amount of division and controversy because there's judgment and condemnation abounding. And what Paul is saying is you're supposed to be in Christ, so you've got to stop judging others and condemning others and putting yourself above them. Like for Paul, that is so disruptive and destructive to the church. Those evil deeds have to be put to rest, no ifs, ands, or buts, because now you are God's children. He continues on in verse 15. He says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul says, listen, your identity is no longer as a slave. You are not a slave to sin. You're not a slave to death. You're not a slave to fear. But now your primary identity is that you are a child of God. He's the one we cry Abba, Father to. And how do you know If you are one of God's children, let's put that verse back up on the screen. What is the thing? Some people say this verse, verse 17 here, is like Paul's definition of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian. I'm going to read it again. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we, what? Suffer with him. So we also will be glorified with him. So Paul says, we know that we are following Jesus when we suffer with him. I mean, that is such a hard message because, let's be honest, none of us want to suffer. But it is in our suffering that we actually become more like Jesus. The very first Christians understood this. This is why fasting was so important for them. Because the very first Christians thought they had life so good that they would fast to bring some suffering in. And through that suffering, God would help them to be more like Jesus. Which, by the way, if the very first Christians thought they had life so good that fasting was a good idea, maybe for us that might not be a bad idea either. Now, you got to be careful because there are certainly sects throughout Christianity that would take this and they get into weird things like they're flogging themselves. And listen, don't beat yourself because you think God hates you and you need to atone for that. That's not what it's about. It's just this idea that it is through suffering we become like Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I found that most of my life is like, how do I avoid the most suffering? How can I be the most comfortable Amen. I wonder if we're choosing to be comfortable more than we're choosing to be Christ-like. 
Could God be calling you to give up something? Maybe there is a goal or aspiration in your life that is not of him, and he's asked you to sacrifice that and lay down, and it will cause suffering in your life, but through that suffering, you become more like Jesus. Maybe he's called you to to stop putting your own hopes and dreams and career goals and everything else, but to suffer for him. And it's, it's amazing because I think sometimes, you know, I follow Jesus. I want to be like him. I want to do the things that he did. But when I think about that, I'm like, I mean, he taught with authority. And I mean, he healed people and he was bringing heaven to earth. Like, like I want to do those things. But if you really think about it, from the, the beginning of the Christian faith, what has been the one symbol that defines who Jesus is? It's the cross. Right? Some of you have this tattooed on your bodies. Some of you are wearing it around your neck right now. Some of you probably have a whole wall of crosses up in your house. And we look, this is fundamental to the identity of Jesus that he was willing to suffer. And sometimes you say, well, didn't Jesus suffer so we didn't have to? Except that what did Jesus call his followers to do? To come and die. To pick up your own cross. Like, If we want to be like Jesus, we have to embrace suffering in this life. But here's the thing. Remember, the context Paul's talking about here is this is a group of Christians who are at each other's throat. And sometimes suffering with Christ means suffering with one another. How many people here know that marriage can be hard? Don't don't raise your hand because you might be next to a spouse. I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble here. But if we were to hypothetically raise our hands, some people know marriage can be hard. There can be difficulties. I dare say there may be seasons where you suffer together. But why is it that in every other relationship, when the going gets tough, we get going? Oh, well, that person hurt me and offended me. I'm done with them. Oh, that person said something I didn't like in life group, headed off to a new church. Like I think we have forgotten what it's like to suffer with one another. And we live in a generation now that reports having less friends than any other generation before because we don't suffer together. We're so quick to move on to the next place. But what if it's through suffering together that Jesus is actually making us more like him? You know, uh, next year, Bridgepoint will turn 20 years old. And there are some people at our church who have been here for almost 20 years Some of you have only been here for 20 minutes, and that's great. We're glad you're here. But if you ever get a chance to sit down and talk to some of those people, I bet they will talk to you about their experience at Bridgepoint, some of the highest mountaintops in their life. But like when when they got that diagnosis, people were there with meals and would pray with them and would cry with them in their home. But I bet if you got them in an honest moment, they would probably talk to you about some of the valleys. They would talk to you about maybe personalities that clashed and how they were so wounded they didn't even want to see that other person anymore. They might talk about other people they were so close to who left the church and it felt like everybody was leaving and they were tempted to go too. But I bet if they pressed in even more, what they would tell you is that because they stayed and suffered together, they are more like Jesus today than they were 20 years ago. See, that's the kind of church community that God is looking for, not going after the next good sermon or music or the next group that's going to welcome me in, but will we actually suffer together? 
If you're in relationship, there will be pain. There will be heartache. But it is through that that we are being transformed into the image of Jesus. He continues on, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So listen, there is suffering. He's not denying that. But there's a glory that's coming that will be worth it. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed or God's children. Listen, all of creation is waiting for God's children to finally be his images in the world. All of creation is waiting for us to be the caretakers that God has called us to be. Like, you can get weird with this. That tree out there is waiting for us to start caring for the world the way we intended to. All of creation, creatures big and small, are waiting for us to be who God intended for us to be. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Saying, listen, it's been groaning, waiting for the day when we would be God's images, because as we become God's images, creation itself is liberated and set free. See, the story that the Bible is telling is not how God's going to burn this whole place up, but how he's going to renew it. There's hope in that. That means everything we do, we have an opportunity to bring heaven to earth and creation itself groans. But don't miss this in the very next verse. It says, not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as our first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Not only is creation groaning, we're groaning. We're groaning because we want to live in the already, but it still feels like we're living in the not yet. Like we want to live in heaven, but the world feels a lot like hell. See, we're trying to live in Christ, but our body is still ravaged by cancer. We want to live in Christ, but our spouse was still unfaithful. We want to live in Christ, but we're barely getting ends to meet. We want to experience heaven on earth, but man, we groan. And here's the thing. Paul doesn't say you're groaning and you need to shut up. No, Paul says we groan and that's appropriate. Listen, if we can't groan over the brokenness of the world, then we have blinders on. Like our heart should groan when we see another mass shooting. Our heart should groan when we think about the number of abortions, our hearts should groan when we see racism alive and prevalent. Our hearts should groan when we see the brokenness of the world. And see, Paul knew there was an ancient Jewish practice called lament, where they would cry out to God. I mean, read the Psalms. God, how long are you going to wait? How long are you going to let our enemies triumph? How long will you let sin and death still reign in the world? I think maybe for... Some of us here in this room, today's the day we need to recapture the art of lament. That God's not scared of your anger. He's not scared that you're frustrated and disappointed. He's not scared of your doubts and your questions. He invites it all. And maybe today some of us need to be groaning out because here's the thing. We don't groan for no reason. Why do we groan? In verse 24, 
Now in this hope, we were saved. What's the hope? He said it earlier, that all creation would be redeemed. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. He says we groan because we hope that this world will be restored. And obviously it's not because you don't hope for something that you see. And see, here's the thing. I always wonder if, if there is no God and, and everything is totally random, then why would we expect this world to be any better than it is? I think that the whole hope that we have that this world should be better than it is, is because deep inside our hearts, we know that this place should be different. We know that God desires different. We know that we should be experiencing heaven on earth. And so we groan because we have hope. It's not a defeatist mentality. It's saying, God, I don't understand. I don't understand because I'm hoping that things will be better. Now jump down to verse 28. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Probably a better translation would be, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And this passage has been preached and preached. Probably half of you like Instagrammed it this week with your coffee in the morning. Sometimes it's like, what else could I say? But here's the thing as your pastor, here's what I want you to know. And you probably have already heard this before. Half of teaching is just reminding you what you already know. He doesn't say that God causes all things. I think it's so important for us to realize. You think, well, God's in control, so he's got to have a plan and all this stuff. And listen, God is in control in the sense that, like, he's not going to lose. But you realize there are other wills at work in the world. Like, the power of sin and death are really at work in the world. Like, Jesus even told the Pharisees, you have rejected God's purpose for your life. Like, I know my will has been against God's will sometime. I know my wife and I, in between our first and second child, we had a series of miscarriages. And well-meaning, well-intentioned people would come up and say, God knows what he's doing. And God has a plan. And I remember in the moment just thinking, so you think God killed our babies? Do you really think it's God's will for kids to get cancer? You really think it's God's will for that teenager to die in a car crash? Is real? Are we really saying that's God's will? Listen, the reality is there are bad things that happen, but God will work all things together. I don't know how he's going to do it. And by the way, do not give this verse to somebody who is groaning. Sometimes just sit down and groan with them. But listen, when you're not in that period of groaning, this is a good verse to remind yourself. He will work all things together. Now remember, he's talking to churches that, that are, there's division and there's suffering and they're tempted to give up. And he's saying, listen, God will work all these things. He'll work all that condemnation, that judgment, that abuse of power. He'll even work all that together for the good of this community. And what is the good of that community? That it will become a community who suffers together, who hopes together, who serves together together to see Jesus bring heaven to earth. See, that's what it means for God to work all things together. I know even in my wife and I, in our own journey, sometimes the times we needed Christians the most were the times that they gave us the harshest words or the most judgment. Listen, I don't begrudge them. I don't. 
But what I think God did through that season, because honestly, sometimes, you know, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes it's because you're stupid, right? And I have certainly been the contributor to, to bad things, and I've been the, the recipient of some bad things. But God has worked all that together to create in us a heart, to create a community where there would be people who are free to come when they don't have everything together. And they don't have to be afraid of condemnation and judgment. And they don't have to be afraid to check their questions at the door, but they can come just as they are because we have been there and we know that what we needed more than anything was love and people to suffer with us and people to be there for us. And that's who we want to be. And I know some of you are here today because you walked out of a situation where there was deep hurt and wounding and I'm not minimizing that at all. And what was done, there's no excuse for it. But could it be that God would even want to use that to help craft a community that becomes a safe place for people to explore faith and figure out what it looks like to actually be with Jesus and become like Jesus and be sent by Jesus. I think he'll use all things together to create a community that is truly good. And I want to jump down real quick to the last few verses here. Verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is so confident that despite the division, no matter the powers of life and death, of sin, of fear, no angels, no rulers, there's no power at work in the world that can keep you from the love of God when you are in Christ Jesus. And that is such good news because we're in moments when we are in moments of groaning and we feel like God has abandoned us, we know that nothing we are walking through will ever separate us from the love of God. And it's good news because this morning, I, I, I know there are people who are walking in and you've got a secret you haven't told anybody, not even your spouse. And you have a past that you're ashamed of and you have these things that you are battling and you need to know that nothing will separate you from the love of God. But we also need to know that when we commit to be a community in Christ, does that mean things will be perfect? Does that mean things will always be rosy and we'll never get our toes stepped on and people always treat us perfectly? No, but no matter what power of the world wants to be at work when we are in Christ, it's only the love of God that we experience day after day after day. And that is good news. And so what I'd like to do this morning, we're going to continue like we do every Sunday with a time of communion. We can just sit together in the presence of Jesus. And as we do, I think there's a few groups of people who are here this morning. I think the first one, for, for some of you, I don't know what's been going on in everybody's life for the last 12 months or even the last 12 hours. But I do know for some of you who are here, it's been a rough road recently. And if that's you and you walked in, burdened and beaten down and felt like you had to put on a good face to show up today during this time of communion as you sit with the body and the blood of Jesus would you let this be an honest moment where you can just groan just tell him how mad you are how you don't understand how you're exhausted you're worn out and you're done ask him how long and take a moment 
just to sit and listen. Allow him to minister to you. I think for some of us here today, you needed to know that nothing is going to separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And maybe you felt like, I need to keep God at a distance because I'm just not who I need to be. Listen, if you're not who you need to be, join the club. We're all on this journey together. And maybe in this moment, as you sit with the body and the blood, you let his love wash over you. Or maybe you're somebody. And right now in this moment, if you're being honest, you're kind of living in the already. Things are going pretty well. Yeah, there's ups and downs, but there's not a whole lot of groaning going on. If that's you, then in this moment, would we just lift up the people who are groaning? The people we know in our lives right now who've just been through it, that we would groan with them. We would mourn with those who mourn. We would weep with those who weep. If there are people that we know that need to be reminded of the depth of God's love for them, let's lift them up together. And in fact, I'll do this. I'll be down here up front. If anybody needs prayer, you don't have to say a word. Paul actually says the spirit intercedes on our behalf because we don't even know what to say sometimes. I'd be honored to pray for you. I'll be here if you need that. But whatever it is, all of us today, we can groan, we can sit in God's love, and we can pray for those who are in a place of groaning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we are so thankful that you have defeated the powers of sin and death, that we have been baptized into you. God, if we're being honest this morning, sometimes it still feels like we're living in the world. And so I pray for every person who walked in weary, and burdened, and broken down, every person hiding a secret, every person walking through a sickness, fighting for their marriage, just grasping to hold on that right now we just groan out with them, God. We ask how long. And I pray you would be with those of us who are not in that spot, that we would come alongside, we would just sit, we would lament, we would listen, and we would lift them up to you because, God, we want to be that kind of community that suffers together, that hopes together, that serves together, because we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.